Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Bonnie Honick. She's Nancy Duke Lewis Professor of Modern Culture and Media and Political Science at Brown University. Her books include the prize-winning Political Theory and the Displacement of Politics and Emergency Politics, A Feminist Theory of Refusal, Shell-Shocked, Feminist Criticism After Trump, and is one of the contributing authors prominently featured in Helen DeCruz's new book, in which we're going to discuss today, Philosophy Illustrated, 42 Thought Experiments to Broaden Your Mind. Welcome, Bonnie. <laughs> so, Bonnie, obviously, thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Sorry, what I, I shouldn't have been on mute, obviously. Yeah, it's right? okay. So, so yeah, it's, so it's just you All know. Good. So, we are actually very grateful, and I want to kind of just break the ice here. This is one of I think Bonnie's first podcast appearances. I don't do a lot of podcasts. Yeah, I, yes. It may not be my first, but I don't do it often. Yeah. Yes. So, which is why the both of us were obviously super grateful to have Bonnie on because we were like, wow, oh my god, like she actually doesn't do podcasts. Like we kind of feel special. Mm -hmm. So, um, I feel special too. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for the introduction. Yeah, that was actually a great introduction, by the way. <laughs> so, okay, to get into it, Bonnie, so who was John Rawls, right? So that's going to kind of be the biggest question that people are going to ask us before we even get into the thought experiment. So who was John Rawls and why is he still important to sort of political theory? And just why is he important to just general understanding of, uh, hopefully, I guess, why is he, why would he be important to the general understanding of politics today? So John Rawls was a political philosopher, uh, which will be important later, not a political theorist, but a philosopher who studied politics um, and who wrote uh, a field defining book called A Theory of Justice. And he was at Harvard and he had written a series of articles in the 50s and 60s about proceduralism and different ways of thinking about justice and justification. Uh, and then the book came out, I believe in 1971. And at that point, a lot of the work in Anglo-American philosophy had become very modest in the wake of Wittgenstein. Um, sort of studies of how we use words, of the different ways that words signify, what the different assignations of words could teach us about language. Uh, and then, and so there was a kind of modesty in the way that philosophers were relating to the world. There was only so much that could be done. Uh, and, and what could be done, a lot of it was kind of, you know, Lockean under laborer work that sort of clarifying definitions, clarifying signification, it's a lot of clarifying. <laughs> and then, um, so one of the reasons that Rawls's book was such a hit at the time was that in 1971, the world was exploding with civil rights, um, the civil rights movement, with the anti-war movement, with feminism, and philosophy was still moving in its, you know, smallish, self-defined way. Um, partly out of, well, there were many, many reasons for that, but let's just say that one of them was out of a desire for precision. It's very hard to be precise about worlding events. And uh, so it was a kind of self-containment. And then Rawls wrote this book and it was called A Theory of Justice, but what it was, was an account of what justice requires that was very systematic, um, that was uh, ambitious, you know, 400 some pages on what would have to be the case for a regime to be able to call itself just and how to use that as a standard by which to find other places in the real world unjust and how to bring the principles to bear to remediate that in whatever ways we can. It was a very ambitious book. And, uh, and in addition to the fact that it redeemed liberalism, it was also as big as it was because it redeemed the possibility of thinking rigorously and philosophically about politics a project that had been in abeyance for a period of time. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry, just to ask, right? What do we think, what do we uh, consider by, or what do we think about, what does thinking liberally mean? I think a key a ingredient of a theory of justice was its commitment um, to a, a kind of what Rawls saw as Kant, Kantianism, which is, the element of Kantianism that was uh, critical of consequentialism. So 
Maybe the better way to say it is this. Uh, the idea was the last school of philosophy that had really gone all in on doing politics and generating policy was utilitarianism. Right. And Rawls uh, wanted to kind of provide a liberal response to utilitarianism because utilitarianism was really good on thinking um, aggregatively about uh, different uh, social policies, but less good perhaps um, at uh, prizing the dignity of the individual. And so Rawls's uh, response to that situation, so now we have a twofold situation, which I've constructed and I think is roughly accurate, right? Which is if you're doing social policy, you're a utilitarian, and otherwise you're not doing social policy, you're a philosopher working in this underlaboring way in linguistic philosophy. I'm sure that that's I've made a hash of what was actually going on, but roughly you could situate Rawls like that. And Rawls comes along and says, no, we can do something systematic and social political, uh, but not in the utilitarian way because that doesn't respect individuals and not in the self-enforcing modest way, you know, and unambitious way, deliberately unambitious way um, that linguistic philosophy has adopted. There's room for something called political philosophy. And this is, as he somewhat modestly said, a way of doing it, right? A theory of justice, not mm -hmm. the theory of justice. Uh, it quickly became the, in, because he got so many followers who became very invested in defending Rawlsianism against all kinds of uh, criticisms. Uh, but in his word, it was a theory of justice. He thought it was defensible and justifiable, but he certainly didn't think it was the only possible one that a good political philosopher could come up with. But the priority of liberty and the importance of the individual were two the two features that made it a liberal theory of justice. Wow. I mean, that's so amazing, isn't that? Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, his book is actually, and the distinction and the nuance there is so important that it's a theory of justice as opposed to the theory of justice. Because I think so many intellectuals, especially, you know, kind of a, uh, older my, white male philosophers, you know, back in, uh, you know, 17, 1800s would have written a book like, oh, this is the theory of justice. Like, I figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Like, just read my book. <laughs> I know. It's interesting, right? Because it is thought of as this incredible reclamation of ambition for philosophy because it was systematic and it, you know, it went, it did everything from, you know, the argument for the priority of liberty to thinking with Piaget about childhood development. You know, it was very ambitious. And yet at the same time, it was just up. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, agonistic. It's kind of like I'm entering my theory into the agon, you know, and now people can prefer it or not to other viable alternatives, but there are still are not that many viable alternatives because it does have a kind of 18th century quality, right? Yeah, and what's so interesting too, now going into the thought experiment, I think the thought experiment in, the, in somewhat of a way kind of betrays a humility there for Rawls, right? Where it's not really that obvious, you know, what is just? Because in the way the thought experiment is presented, it seems like justice is sort of fairness, right? But like, what is the sort of line, right? Between kind of obviously, you know, being fair and having, uh, you know, allowing people to live their lives and, you know, kind of do whatever they want to do in terms of whatever they see as good, as opposed to obviously infringing on their rights and saying, no, 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 like, this isn't the way to live. So can you tell us a little bit about the happy grass counter experiment and how that, I guess, in some way ties into what is just and what is good. And obviously going into sort of the rights that we have for ourselves and the rights that we have, I mean, I guess in terms of what we can impose on others. Okay, I'm still writing down the first of that series. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can go through this one by one. We can go through this one by one. So I'm very happy to tell you about the grass counter. And in fact, I'm going to see, maybe I can call up the, um, the text of it and read you just the lines from, uh, from the theory of justice, a theory of justice. Yep. Um, so um, the... Uh, the grass counter is a thought experiment that Rawls uh, develops in about two, maybe two thirds of the way through the book. And in it, he is um, proposing a kind of, speaking of agonism, I mean, he presents himself with a kind of challenge as he does throughout the book. You know, he'll develop the argument and he'll go, well, an objection could be made from this perspective or that perspective. He often does that through an argument, sort of articulating the counter argument. But in the case of the grass counter, he's made the argument that this is a, 
a good regime, not just in terms of its distribution of goods and it's, you know, not overly inegalitarian um, uh, arrangements, uh, but also because it's a place where people, that's why it's so interesting, frankly, to talk with you guys about this, because it would be a psychically healthy place to live. Um, he says, you know, it's uh, a place where people will have self-respect, we'll be very diverse, we won't all agree on many things, but we'll all be supportive in being self-respecting and even in having self-esteem, uh, because it's the nature of the regime that he imagines that we would um, not just tolerate all kinds of conceptions of the good, but respect them, which is a step beyond mere tolerance. And so that's the aim. And then he challenges himself with this example, which I have thought about, thought about 30 years ago and for my first book and have since thought about recently in new ways. And each time it seems to me not to do what he wants it to do, which is kind of funny because the grass counter himself is an example of someone who's not gonna do what people want him to do. So it sort of has this meta level repetition. The grass counter uh, is a test of this assumption or faith that we will have self-respect and self-esteem sort of uh, distributed throughout this uh, regime called justice is fairness. And this is what Rawls has to say about it. He says, imagine someone whose only pleasure it is to count blades of grass in various geometrically shaped areas such as park squares and well-trimmed lawns. He, the grass counter, is otherwise intelligent, otherwise intelligent, and actually possesses unusual skills since he manages to survive by solving difficult mathematical problems for a fee. The definition of the good, which is to say that we all have our own conceptions of the good and we tolerate various ones in this place, the definition of the good forces us to admit that the good for this man is indeed counting blades of grass. Naturally, we would be surprised that such a person should exist. Perhaps he is peculiarly neurotic. But if we allow that his nature is to enjoy this activity and not any other, this establishes that it is good for him. And that's, that's the end. I, I've abbreviated it slightly. Those who know the book off by heart, as many do, will notice there's a few uh, ellipses, but if they're entirely fair. That's a good summary of the, of the thought experiment. So when I wrote about, should I go on to tell you what I think about? Please, yeah, yeah, please. please. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so now he's the grass counter. Right? He's, uh, he's reduced to the one activity that gives him pleasure. And when I wrote about this book 30 years ago, my focus was on the encounter. In other words, we're told that we have to ascertain whether, is, is this really what you want to do with your whole life? Um, and I started thinking about, well, let's consider this, this isn't how I wrote about it, but now I would say that I took this analytic philosopher's example and thought about it in phenomenological terms, like what would happen in that encounter when people, this guy is harming no one, hanging out, counting blades of grass, and we live in a society where we are justified and even obliged to check with him. Is this what you want to be doing? Are you really happy doing this? Is this, you know, should we leave you alone? <laughs> and ask, and then I asked in the book at the time, what would that be like? Would that be uh, a situation in which your self-respect and self-esteem would be burnished? as Rawls says, many encounters would be injustice as fairness, or would that be a situation in which you would start to feel like something might be wrong with you in the opinion of your neighbors? And maybe you might feel like you're being clinically examined and maybe some of these sentences that Rawls imagines neighbors uh, or passers-by saying, maybe those would feel like they were coming from a social worker who'd been asked to check in on you. And so I didn't go much further than that. That was quite a lot at the time, you know, to think about sort of what the experience would be like and how it went against um, many of the things that Rawls was saying we could count on in justice as fairness. And it suggested to me the emergence of a kind of two-tieredness 
Because one of the things that justice is fairness is supposed to be really good at is inculcating um, the good practice of deliberation in people. So people, you know, it sounds so great now too, right? People would just be really good at deliberating about public things, but also about their own conceptions of the good and that kind of deliberation and, you know, affirmation and revisitation would be encouraged. It's a very therapeutic model in some ways, right? And so, so people would earn their self-respect and self-esteem by living with others who were similarly inclined from that perspective, this guy who doesn't want to answer questions, who just wants to do what he wants to do, he'd prefer to be left alone by implication, um, and is finally left alone only because they can't figure out what they could do with him to make him a better, more deliberative person that in a way that wouldn't also violate his liberty. And so they have to, they're forced to respect his liberty by their commitment to the kind of privacy of conceptions of the good. They're not all gonna be transparent to us. You can imagine the day could come. I, didn't, I haven't talked about this ever before, but it occurs to me now. You could imagine the day could come where counting blades of grass turns out to be a really magnificent idea, right? Where there's- It, it so spreads. Many, it spreads like a wildfire. Well, you know, and yeah. there's so few grass left. And this guy knows all the different kinds, you know, and we have to like repopulate the earth with grasses because we've had a series of climate catastrophes. And he's the guy who yeah. knows how they grow and what what makes them lean one way rather than the other and how best to cultivate them. You know, so there's always that possibility. Right. right. Um, but what's really important to the example, I I think now I, I don't think I said this early on, is that it's an example of someone being useless. So yeah. rather than redeeming him by imagining one day, this could turn out to be really useful knowledge. It's more important to say, you know what? Uselessness is okay too. Like uselessness, like usefulness is not the, an ideal. It's actually an ideal that attaches to a particular form of life, which I think Rawls certainly would have called liberal capitalism with a kind of social democratic twist, you know, in terms of what he was promoting in justice is fairness. And so, you know, we, we look at someone passing the time doing something that gives him pleasure. And we ask, is that useful? Couldn't he be spending his time in a better, more productive way? And for Rawls, that was, that's what it meant to be deliberative. But for me at the time, and still now at the time, I thought, well, this is a violation of some of the tenets of his own liberalism. But now I want to say, you know, being a wastrel, being a, in Italian, you would say farniente, a do nothing, mm -hmm. uh, being, being a Bartleby, I prefer not to, is a hallowed literary tradition, you know, figures who just refuse to be put to use by the regime that they are living in. Mm -hmm. And so now in the aftermath of what I would call the literary turn in political theory, it seems impossible to look at Rawls's grass counter without the universe of literary figures who've absolutely stood for, sometimes demanded, but sometimes taken the right to not be useful. Um, so that is a different kind of critique, I think, of Rawls than the earlier one, um, but it was there all along. It took the development of a kind of interaction between literary and political theory reading um, to make it evident. But of course, you know, the Flaneur uh, and, uh, and the Farniente and all these, these characters are all I want to say they're all 19th century characters. That's true in terms of literature, but I just wrote a book about the Bacchae, and of course, that's what the Bacchants are too. They leave the loom and they go out to a you know a, a field outside the city in order to do nothing, and that's taken to be a terrible challenge to the regime that they just want to do nothing. So do nothings have been a challenge for, to a lot of different regimes. Let's put it that way. Right, and plus, who are we to criticize a so-called do nothing? How do we know that they're uh, their quote unquote uselessness isn't something that they may be doing in the moment, maybe to decompress so that they can perform other tasks. A, a lot of people tend to assume, you know, what another person's position is or how they identify, but they couldn't possibly know. And assuming that, you know, is, is an error. 
uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it also made me think, uh, I don't mean to steer away too much from this, but I also want to bring it back to the both of you. Um, so, you know, just thinking about it in terms of uh, like, since obviously, um, we brought up Piaget, right? And just child development. And obviously, since I'm a therapist, I always kind of think about it in terms of like child development and parents, right? So you know how parents try to force their kids to like go into a particular career, or uh, maybe even date a particular type of person, right? And we have this a lot in these different cultures, obviously, and we have this particularly in our culture, where it's kind of like a, a sort of running joke that if you're a Russian kid, your parents are going to pretty much try to make you into a doctor or a lawyer, like that's it. It's like there are no other professions in the, in the rest of the earth, right? Like literally, you're wasting your time unless you're a doctor or a lawyer. So it's it's kind of a, I mean, not necessarily a curiosity, but it's it's sort of not even counterintuitive, but it's sort of um, counter, I guess, maybe evidential if that could be a term in terms of like what actually works for character development and what actually works for, you know, I guess if you want to, for lack of a better term, think about it uh, in terms of success, right? So for a person to be successful, what happens, unfortunately, a lot of the times, parents think that they have to push their children into doing things as though that were what's best for them, right? So um, Alan, right, if you were, let's say a kid, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've had some experiences, but anyone that you might even want to share, right? But if your dad or, you know, whomever, right, wanted to push you into doing something, would you have done it um maybe, maybe for a time mm -hmm. you know um because uh, it depends on your relationship with your parent maybe sometimes you want to impress them you want to do right by them but essentially no that that wouldn't work uh usually what would work for me is maybe having a model of act like a role model mm -hmm. and maybe they it's not that they push me to be like them they are so mm, What's the word? Let's say amazing. They're so amazing that it's just it sort of draws me into their into their world, wanting to be sort of like them. Right. It may not necessarily be my parent; could be another role model. But that usually might sort of pull me towards doing um, actions that may be good for myself. Right, right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So essentially, what you're saying is, it's like you rather have an exemplar showing you rather than telling you what to do. I mean, here again, if it's somebody you respect, yeah. sometimes you may then. So here's the thing. There's a distinction between feeling like you're being gaslit, right? Like as if, you know, they're telling you your your conception of the world is insane or that it's wrong. And so, you know, come over to my side. Right. So there's that. And then there's another version of this where sometimes that person that you respect is telling you, OK, uh, this action may be good for you. Right. Um, I may then sort of maybe doubt um, how I'm doing things and try to do what they do, right. uh, even if it may be hard. Mm -hmm. So it depends. But a lot of times people gaslight each other and that, that tends to be the the sort of experience people have. Right, right. Yeah. And, and how about you, Bonnie? I mean, any sort of uh, kind of examples or thoughts about child rebellion or childhood rebellion? Well, I didn't do any of the things I was supposed <laughs> to do. That's entirely clear. Um, yeah. So, but, but I want to say a few things, if I can. So one Please. is, I, I want to point out that the, there is a way in which the regime that of Rawls imagining is easily parentifiable, let's say, right? It's as if the parents are going, are you sure you want to do this? Like, I know you're making enough money, but is this a good life? Um, and, you know, there's a way in which parents, of course, can do that. And sometimes they're well or ill-advised in how they do it. But when random strangers are doing it in a regime, there's, there's a question of liberty that is different, right? And so Rawls proposes this experiment in order to test his own regime. So in that sense, it's kind of like, an, it's a good exercise of deliberative rationality. It's like, so I've made all the arguments, it looks really good. What would happen, you know? And then, but he decides that his regime passes the test because they let him be. But he doesn't think about how none of them get cross-examined about their choices in the way that people like the grass counter will be cross-examined about their choices. And that difference, I would argue, makes a difference. Um, and uh, the other thing, though, is that he does seem, and this is something else I didn't think of at the time, he does seem to me now to be potentially, obviously, neuroatypical in the sense that he derives pleasure from something that normal people would not find pleasurable. 
Um, and he's neuroatypical in a way that, you know, philosophers might joke amongst themselves that many of them are too. They focus on these problems that, you know, wouldn't hold the attention of many normal people, right? Um, and, um, and he does sort of illustrate a kind of anxiety about philosophy that philosophers have about philosophy, that it's useless. That it doesn't, you know, you spend a lot of time working on a tiny little problem. And so, and, you know, since I started off saying, you know, it was a rejection of a kind of habit of analytic philosophy to spend a lot of time on tiny little problems, there's a way arguably in which the grass counter represents exactly what Rawls is rejecting, um, even though in justice is fairness, they allow him, and he does too, analytic philosophy, you can go on focusing on your tiny little problems, you can spend your lives that way. I'm going to write this big book about a theory mm -hmm. of justice. So there's a lot happening at a lot of levels there, right? Um, the other thing, though, speak, it's funny, actually, what you were saying about Russian parents, I guess, telling you, you have to be a doctor or lawyer because it struck me that Jewish parents uh, would say, certainly post-war Jewish parents or war experiencing Jewish parents coming out of the Second World War would not say doctor or lawyer. They would only offer doctor. And, wow. And that's because law doesn't travel from one place to another. I mean, it's, you know, if you have a Canadian law degree and you wanna practice in the US, you have nothing, you have to start all over again. So I do recall people in my immediate and extended family saying that people had to be doctors because quote, they, they always need doctors. Mm -hmm. Where they are the Nazis, the Russians, the Ukrainians, like whoever it is, you might not die because you're useful to be a doctor is to be transnationally and in every possible situation, a useful person. And so that was why uh, I have several family members actually who grew up to be doctors who were not frankly inclined um, in that direction, but they listened to their parents. Um, so you reminded me of that. And, but it brings us back to this question of really what a wonder it is to be able to live a useless life you know, it's emergency thinking and diasporic thinking and precarity thinking to think that you have to find a way to make yourself invaluably useful for the purposes of survival in an extreme situation, but that's a way to live your life. So, um, so I would say that. And then the last thing I want to say, just before we leave the particulars of the example, if we are going to, I don't know where you guys plan to go with this conversation, but, um, but if we are going to, I just want to point out that the example starts, and this again is sort of an interesting thing about it. It starts, imagine someone whose only pleasure is to count blades of grass. And then it ends by saying, okay, we've established that it's his good. So in the course of the example, of the thought experiment, we are moved from being with someone in their pleasure to being with someone in their good. And that of course is part of Rawls's effort to move us from utilitarianism to Kantianism at the level of social policy, but it's also part of the norming of people so that even those who don't look like they have a conception of the good get re-articulated in a way so that that is what they're having, so that they're not mere pleasure seekers. Again, another version of the problem of uselessness. Um, in the end, I decide actually that the grass counter is queer and he's queer in the sense that he's a spanner in the works of the normal of this regime. And that is why people experience him as posing a question for them and not just as a matter of indifference. In other words, he forces from them a response is what happens in the example. I don't think he in fact does, but that's what happens in the example. Um, and I even compare him in the end to, I don't know if you guys, were familiar with Ferdinand the Bull in your childhoods now that we're speaking mm -hmm. about parentification. But it's a fabulous story about a young bull who just liked to sit in the field and smell the flowers. And his mother asks him several times, like, wouldn't you like to go and play with the other bulls? Wouldn't you like to snort and run and do things? He's like, no, I'm really happy sitting here smelling the flowers. And then, you know, the story uh doesn't end there but at that point in the story the mother says okay if that's if you're that's what makes you happy you know she leaves him alone so there's this just acceptance of him 
Uh, and there is a whole literature, it's not voluminous, but there are several pieces on how Ferdinand is gay, that he doesn't want to go be one of the boys. He wants to smell right. the flowers, which is a more feminine coded thing to be doing. And it does raise the question of whether, of how we should think about the grass counter also as potentially gay, unconsciously, I'm sure for Rawls, but that once we notice that, then we might notice and ask why the places where he counts grass are described in such detail, geometrically shaped areas such as parked squares and well-trimmed lawns says straight, 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 you know, and here's this guy doing this not straight stuff in these straight spaces. So it's just, once you let yourself get literary with philosophy, it turns out philosophers have a lot of literary things happening um, that sometimes just are not called attention to. So it becomes interesting, maybe like dream reading for, you know, psychotherapists, I don't know, but <laughs> there is a kind of text with some density here around questions of sexuality and uselessness um, that are perturbing um, to people, but in ways that could be really interesting to explore. Yeah. So it's like uh, what you're saying is essentially there's deeper meaning, right? Just like when we're talking about psychotherapy and dream analysis, even though I, I'm not really into dream analysis, but I, I get the sort of uh, the sort of, uh, I guess, connection here where uh, we're talking when we're talking in symbols, we're saying that uh, I guess there's and I would even understand why there would be a cloak here, especially in terms of something like homosexuality, especially if this book was written in the 70s or whatever it was. So but uh, yeah, just going back, because uh, I, I want to. So I have several things that I want to ask, but I'm going to try my best to do them on that time um so okay when you say that we're sort of going from utilitarianism uh let's say to kantianism right is my understanding correct when i think that you're saying that we're going from the greater good right to sort of the the kind of communities that people find themselves in to now sort of more so focusing on what the individual thinks of as being good right so are we saying now that even though the community may disagree in this respect and this might probably be a uh, just i guess a general critique of utilitarianism where we're saying that Look, in some instances, what is the greatest good, you know, as it's conceived of generally is actually not good as maybe some other people may think of it, right? Where it's like, in some cases, the individual good should actually supersede the good of the community. Is that what we're thinking here? Yes. Yeah, so we're thinking uh, the best example I can think of, uh, which I sometimes use in my teaching is the scene from, I'm sorry, I don't remember which one, but one of the Monty Python movies. <laughs> Where suddenly there's a knock on the door and two orderlies have appeared with a surgical bed and they've said you know we're here for your kidney you know to the guy who answers the door and he's like what are you talking about you know he runs around tries to evade them and they catch him put him on the gurney and just start taking it out and there's blood everywhere so um, that's the sort of nightmare version of utilitarianism. You know, there's a genius somewhere who's going to die, and there's this guy who's, you know, as useless as the grass counter as far as social order is concerned. And so, of course, his kidney would be much better uh, used if it were repurposed to keep alive the, the genius. Um, and uh, so that's the nightmare version. I don't, I mean, you know, certainly maybe you could say that's a critique of Bentham. Certainly John Stuart Mill revised utilitarianism, so it wouldn't be vulnerable to that kind of criticism, uh, building into it a kind of need to be respectful of individual rights, because what kind of a hellish place would it be? Certainly not happy making for very many at all, if the knock could come to your door at any point um, and the gurney appear and your organs taken for someone else. So, um, so that there is a kind of utilitarian compatible uh, prevention of that. Um, but nonetheless, the charge sticks because it sticks because it thinks in terms of aggregates uh, rather than individuals. And so, yes, so Rawls wanted to think about how you could make an argument that's utilitarian-like, I want to say, but maybe it's also utilitarian light, um, which is to say it's an argument in favor of redistributing having a redistributive kind of justice, you know, where you would be taxing upper classes to support lower classes that could look utilitarian, um, but has a built-in uh, foundation of what he would call neo, what he would call Kantianism, maybe what we would call neo-Kantianism, which is just this insistence on respect for persons and the inviolability of the person. 
Now, nowadays, it's actually hard to recapture a moment in which that could argument was made because I think most very wealthy people uh, would describe these days taxation as if you were removing one of their body parts, like that the, that the offense is so uh, beyond a certain minimum of taxation that's also evadable, you know, that the offense is so deep against property that it's, in, it's like, just like, you know, taking an organ or a body part from them. So it, in that sense, the book uh, was persuasive in a way that I don't know if it could be now on that basis. He wrote another, he wrote, uh, Rawls did several articles and books afterwards, couple books afterwards that developed the idea further. And there's a whole Rawls industry now that defends it further. So I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about what if the original book was released now, what would, with all the armature that has developed against the idea since, I think it would receive a very different kind of uh, reception. That's yeah. not a strange phrase, yeah. Yeah. And it, I was thinking, you know, what if we were to tweak the thought experiment just a little bit? And what if the grass counter were somebody like a cashier, right? Well, we say, we say, okay, you know, let's say, uh, would there be kind of a distinction where you're thinking, well, you know, this person is a mathematician, so we can leave them alone, right? But what if this person was a cashier? What if this person were a cashier on welfare now, right? And he were spending his free time, you know, counting grass, how would we kind of treat them? Would we now treat him as a kind of quote unquote useless either? Or would we sort of see him as still somebody who's just enjoying his free time counting blades of grass? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's why, you know, Rawls does float the possibility that he's peculiarly neurotic. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes that float is that he also doesn't have a regular job. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's someone who's kind of fashioned a life for himself in this very, and we haven't used this term before, but I think it's the right term, in a very high achieving society, in a society that's designed to engender high achievement out of people. That's one of its best justifications. You'll not only live free, you'll live your best life or you'll have it available to you to live your best life in this place. Um, that's one of its justifications. And so for someone to opt out, I prefer not to, who clearly could do so much better because he can solve difficult mathematical problems. So, you know, cashier is nothing compared to what this guy's capable of if he just put his mind to it. So that's a real challenge. And I think uh, Rawls was trying to imagine the real challenge. The real challenge is not too much intervention, but too little intervention. You know, because we're building this utopia of rational deliberators. And what if we have someone who just rejects us, rejects that whole idea of building a, a, a that that it would be a utopian thing to live in a society governed by rational deliberation. Um, and so, you know, kudos to him that he was willing to think about to pose like a very tough uh, thought experiment to himself. And at the same time, he's forced by his own experiment to think maybe he's peculiarly neurotic, which means that he will not respond to the inducements of high achievement, like ambition, more money, social status, you know, things that remain attractive within the liberal capitalism of Rawls's imagining. So yeah, it's, a, it's a, just a very interesting, when I talk about it as queer, that's partly because you know, neuroatypicality is queer in the queer theory sense, not that it's gay, but that it's queer in the sense that it throws a spanner in the works of the automatic reproduction machine, you know? So if someone chooses to live this life when they could be doing something better, then, you know, they're issuing a challenge. Um, in, the, in the Philosophical Experiments book that we, uh, that has brought us together because this is partly uh, this work is partly in there. The uh, book edited by Helen de Cruz. Um, one of the study questions that I attached to this experiment and my reading of it is uh, the case uh, written by about by Gail Solomon of Letitia King, who was a trans high school student who was attacked daily and ultimately murdered for uh, you know, cross-dressing and for um, appearing, allowing him, 
him herself to appear as a girl having been uh, earlier in that community a boy. And, um, you know, her mere appearance as Letitia King was very perturbing. It was not tolerable um, to the community. It's a, a case not that different from the grass counter in the sense that there are people whose uh, appearance or existence is met with aggression by those who represent the majoritarian view. And it's not that they incite the aggression, they're just being who they are. And therefore the question that should be posed in the encounter is what is it in me that is making me feel this aggression towards them? Not what can we do about them to make them, give them a better life because they're not living their best life? Um, to me, that's the important question. Right, and we should be considering that how they appear, how they identify, how, how their being is essentially their conception of the good, right? Yeah. So who- Or you know, their pleasure. Or their pleasure. Pleasure. If they say no, I don't want good. I want pleasure. That's a that's a queer uh, refusal of what we're offering, and I, that should make us think about how we use the good to screen out the pleasurable. Maybe right. that maybe we could learn something from that. Right. And I would even like to kind of go back to what I said before about the cashier, right? So I can see how in one example, let's say you have a, a highly sort of transphobic and homophobic society where they would say something, well, you know, if this person wants to cross dress, you know, they're a mathematician, they're useful to us. Let's just let them do that, right? We can tolerate this. But if that person is a cashier, right? No, no, no. You don't provide enough value to put us through this, right? So we're not going to allow you to that. You can do that. You can't, right? So it's like, don't we want to then, that's why I, I'm kind of thinking this through in terms of like being a cashier, right? Why, why would it be such a different thing to say that, you know, let me see what I want to say. I mean, she said that uh, in Rawls's example, um, that person is neuroatypical, right? right? So, I mean, that's, that's but the here, here, here's what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. So I think the thought experiment, and this is not necessarily a criticism of it, but I could see where, or at least I think I could see where he was going. He was trying to say that this person is a mathematician. Therefore, he is a highly valuable member of society. Thus, right, maybe the impl implication here is we should kind of leave him alone. But I'm saying, what if he isn't a highly, in the terms that we think of highly valuable, right? What if this isn't this, what if it isn't a utopic society where we're just a bunch of intellectuals and we provide a ton of value to our community? What if it's a society where, yes, one person can just be a cashier that's that's as good as it gets or even they just decide that hey you know what i want to drop out in some way but i still want to be able to take care of myself and i want to be a cashier right so i'm just wondering can we accept that person's like uh i guess neuroatypicality of if that's a term as opposed to obviously the other person who's a mathematician and providing you know let's say in some i guess in utilitarian terms greater value to the greater good yeah, so I, I'm glad we went back to that because I wanted to respond to it and I forgot. It's, mm -hmm. um, I think the reason that the solves difficult mathematical problems for a fee is in there is because um, he's trying to contain the example. So it's just about self-respect and self-esteem. In other words, if he did this all the time and he couldn't support himself, that would be a different kind of question for us, right? Because right. we'd have to decide like, do we want welfare to support someone who could make a, a living if he just chose to, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, because he doesn't have to be brilliant. I mean, he could do any, you know, many jobs just as an ordinary person would. And yep. so I think Ross has that in there to sort of just rule, rule out that concern and to say the only concern is his pleasure. It's not, his sustainability, he can sustain himself. Um, but it is interesting that he, that the kind of living that he has is what we would now call precarious because he's problem solving. You know, he's not like for a fee, like he's doing piecework. He's doing like math piecework, right? He doesn't have a regular job that keeps him busy from nine to five. And I suppose that's why we stumble on him, you know, because he's free to be out and about, you know, counting grass when other people are going to and from work or whatever. So there's a way in which Rawls is just trying to contain the example. But at the same time, there is, um, and I'll note that Helen de Cruz's image that she used for this, that I was also writing in response to, imagines Rawls 
on his hands and knees counting blades of grass in Harvard Yard with a statue, there it is, of John Harvard behind him with a bust of him behind him. And, and um, so in doing that, you know, you, you highlight how this imagining of employment by solving difficult mathematical problems for a fee is a kind of elite possibility. Like it's piecework, but it's also elite. It's certainly the work of the mind, not the work of the hands. And then, you know, even just by saying that, I'm like, well, that's interesting. What if the fact that he is counting blades of grass is actually part of his conceptual talent of solving difficult mathematical problems? What if it's actually like if we stopped him doing that, he wouldn't be able to do the other. There's a kind of mind body dualism in a way in this example that assumes like you could, he, this is just a pleasure. Then he does this other thing, which means we'll tolerate him because he's making enough money to support himself. But what if in a strange way, that's the grounding practice of his conceptual imagination? Wow. It's a fascinating idea, I, I think. And I think fundamentally what you're saying is, I'm, I'm maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think fundamentally what you're saying is that that's why to a large degree, all of us should have some high, yeah, to a very large degree. So we should have a high level of humility in terms of what we impose or try to impose on others. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely correct. Um, mm -hmm. And I also think that it's a very good thing to think about the ways in which even when we're at our most abstract and conceptual, we're still embodied, gendered, raced creatures and uh, in the flesh and uh, that there are living all in one plane or the other in either one would be a particularly uh, sustaining way to live as a human. So, and I think that's there in the Rawls example, even though he doesn't attend to it, it's there for us to attend to. It is yeah. a little like theme reading, right? It is. Well, what was that? Before we got. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. And then so and it's just and just because I want to kind of focus on this a little more, right, in terms of the actual symbolism. Um, what are the particular groups that you I mean, obviously, this is a little bit more subjective of a question, but what are the particular groups that you think that this thought experiment applies to? There are whole groups in our society who uh, can be seen socially as useless. Right. Uh, regardless of whether they are. So I think, for example, immediately of um, Saidiya Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, in which women hanging around on street corners are accosted by the police and asked, these are women, uh, she's recovered from the archives of uh, pathologization, from police archives, from newspaper archives from the 1910s and 20s. And they're accosted by the police because they're standing on a street corner. So, you know, what are they up to? What are they not up to? Why are they standing on a street? Don't they have somewhere to be? Um, so teenagers are treated like that of all races, but especially of minoritized races in the United States. Women are treated like that historically. Um, and again, of all races, but especially minoritized races. Um, and, uh, and, I think in general, people who see, who are out in public and seem unoccupied, not with a place to go and not with others, um, are generally uh, sort of coded as stranger danger type figures, you know, that somehow, you know, very much as in Rawls's imagined society. So doesn't he have somewhere he has to be? Like, what's he doing here? So, um, so that is, uh, those are just the first few examples that would come to mind. Uh, you can think of any, you know, it's a big theme in the films of Charlie Chaplin, for example. He's often sitting around doing nothing, not bothering anybody, and some policeman comes along and rouses him um, because it, as if he's refuse, you know, on the street near a house or something like that, sort of bringing down the neighborhood just by, by being there. Yeah. All right. Wow. So is the in implication here for the for the grass counter essentially something along the lines of like, well, we can't understand why he's doing what he's doing. So therefore, he must be up to no good. I don't think that was Rawls's intention. Mm. I think his intention was to 
assuage such concerns mm -hmm. by saying you can check, you know, really you shouldn't, you know, if he's not, you know, insane, you're not going to be able to commit him to an asylum or anything because liberty comes first, not your comfort, you know, so that's a constraint on us. You know, he's theorizing what's the constraint on us when we have an encounter with someone who makes no sense to us, right? And, um, and the constraint on us is, you know, uh, strong, you know, it just because he's doing something that makes no sense, he's not doing anyone any harm. And so, you know, you cannot, he could be, you could imagine him as someone who's houseless, you know, and is outside where he shouldn't be at times when he shouldn't be doing things that make no sense to you. You are constrained in justice as fairness in terms of how you can handle that. Of course, in justice as fairness, that wouldn't happen because people wouldn't be houseless because the bottom is well is well enough taken care of in a humanist way. People have shelter, people have food. Um, so their differences are less exaggerated by class inequality than they are in our own society. Right, sure but I answered your question. Yeah, though. yeah, but but still quite frightening, right? So even though, like, let's say maybe let's say hypothetically, crime and you know poverty is removed, there's still a fear there. There's still a fear of like, wait, what's he up to, and why is he up to this? So let's say again, we eliminate, you know, uh, the negatives that usually people think about. If let's say you know you have uh, African American people standing on a street corner, oh, they must be selling drugs or whatever it is. But even here, if that's out of the question, there's still this kind of like uh, suspicion that he, yeah, we might not be able to figure out what he's doing, but he must be up to something. So yeah, up to something usually means more than one person doesn't always fit a particular demographic, but it is interesting that the, in the example that you gave, you know, it's a bunch of people standing on a corner and they must be up to something. And I would say that in democratic theory, generally, we're highly in favor of people gathering together and getting up to something. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, when that's not happening that's a bad sign <laughs> i love that so much so we're pretty much getting up on the hour uh bonnie thank you so much for thank coming you. on this was so amazing and so enlightening obviously we wanted to you know get a chance to cover more stuff but you know hopefully at some future day we can cover other works especially your works on feminism which seems super interesting and exciting um so alan final questions before we wrap up oh yes uh if you wanted to follow you follow your work uh, where can we find you? To follow me or follow my work? You mean like on oh, Twitter? Yeah, so, or, social yeah, media like, websites. Like Twitter, yeah. Oh, oh I website. see. No. Yeah. yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. I just, after talking about people hanging around, suddenly <laughs> had a different, <laughs> slightly different Stranger body. danger. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Uh, where I think I'm just my name, Bonnie Honig, um, and I'm at Brown. So I, there's a kind of institutional website there. I'm afraid I don't have much else to offer because I left okay. Facebook at the time that, uh, what's his name, Zuckerberg was involved in a Federalist Society dinner for Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the straw that broke that camel's back. There could have been many others. And um, I don't think I'm on, yeah, I'm not on any other social media. So uh, so it's just Twitter and my books, you know, they're available wherever books are sold, as they used to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Vani, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was really fun. I appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. Awesome. All right. So guys, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Twitter and sorry, something on Facebook <laughs> and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. And thank you so much for watching. Look forward to next week's episode.